0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo.
2: Episode 31, and I can't wait. It is Masters Week. So, Cam Rogers, host of the Tiger Woods pod right here on the Believe Podcast Network, he'll be joining the show momentarily to talk about what the Masters are going to look like without Tiger Woods, the five time champ, the 2019 champ. He won't be there this weekend, of course, still recovering from that horrific car accident. We'll talk who the favorites are. Some daily fantasy bets to make for the weekend in Augusta National. I can't wait. The best weekend in golf of the year. We're going to get to the Mets. That disastrous opening night loss. Same old Mets. We're going to get to the Jets. Sending Sam Darnold down to Carolina to the Panthers. Zach Wilson, he appears to be the guy in New York. But let's start with that National Championship game. Can I say it? Am I allowed to say it right off the bat? That Gonzaga looked like a hungover team that had never been there before, because that's really how Mark Few's squad came out. They came out, Baylor punched them in the mouth, 9-0 in the first three minutes, and that ball game was over. As great as the Final Four matchup between Gonzaga and UCLA, that late night game was, this game was over in three minutes, because Gonzaga came out flat, hungover, and looked like they were still so busy celebrating that win against 11-seed UCLA in the Final Four that they didn't realize they had to play a national championship game two days later. I mean, you can't make it up. I have been a Gonzaga hater all season. All year long, I have been against Gonzaga. They are not a good enough team to go undefeated. They do not deserve to be in the college basketball history books. As people were saying, if they finish the undefeated season at 32-0... They were the best team of all time. I said, no, 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 no. This is not the best college basketball team of all time. I finally changed my stance. I hopped on the bandwagon right before the Final Four, just in time for Gonzaga's two worst games of the season. You can't make it up. I thought Iowa would beat them. They steamrolled the Hawkeyes. They went through Kansas and Virginia like a hot knife through butter, right? I thought USC would be the perfect team in the Elite Eight To put the Bulldogs in their place, to give them a battle, I thought Evan and Isaiah Mobley down low with Limit Gonzaga scoring in the paint. What did they do? They shot damn near 60% inside the arc and tortured the Trojans for 40 minutes of basketball. I mean, every time I tried to pick against Gonzaga, they just shut me right up. I finally, finally hop on the bandwagon just before the Final Four and they win a game that will always be discussed as Maybe the best college basketball game of all time. Surely top three. But they win a game that, frankly, they did not deserve to win against a much tougher UCLA team with way more heart. They squeak by the Bruins and then get embarrassed by the Bears. I'm talking annihilated in the national championship game. And yet people still want to wake up after that game and say it was just one night and make the argument that this Gonzaga team should still be considered one of the best teams of all time. And while now they absolutely cannot be considered an all-time team because they are not a national champion, I take full responsibility because I am a complete jinx. You cannot make this up. I mean, Gonzaga did not deserve to beat UCLA in that game Saturday night. Baylor, meanwhile, goes out and for 40 minutes from start to finish, dominates... Kelvin Sampson's Houston Cougars team. I mean, that game was never remotely close. I think it was 17-11 a few minutes in, and then Baylor just absolutely pulled away, and they picked up where they left off. Gonzaga looked like they were still jumping on tables, still too busy celebrating. I mean, not for nothing, but a buzzer beater win, it's incredible. They did it against an 11 seed in the Final Four, and I know that this UCLA team had elite talent, had top 25, probably top 10 or 15 talent, and then Chris Smith gets injured, and then they have players leave the program. I, I know that UCLA was much better than the 11 seed first four play-in that they got, but still, Gonzaga, if you're going to be talked about like an all-time team, it shouldn't require a buzzer beater to beat an 11 seed. I don't care who they are, how under how underrated they are. Gonzaga didn't act like they had been there before. No, they acted... Like a mid-major. And I know that they're in the West Coast Conference, but Gonzaga's not a mid-major. They're a blue chip. They're spoken of in the same breath as Kentucky, as Duke, as North Carolina, as Kansas, even though Kansas shouldn't be considered a program like the others. They've got one title with Bill Self and a whole lot of disappointment. That's besides the point. Gonzaga ultimately just ended a disappointing season. Anything short of a national title, is disappointment, I know 31-1 and 1 is phenomenal, they had a great season, it can be great, but also be disappointing, and that's exactly what it was, this Baylor team, I mean, credit to them, first national title in school history, what a performance, you know, as disappointing as that game and this season ultimately will go down as for Gonzaga, you gotta give credit where it's due, right, it's not like Baylor just got lucky. Gonzaga was missing all their shots, turning the ball over. No, no, no. Baylor was forcing those turnovers. That incredible stifling Baylor defense closing in on the Zags, frustrating their shooters, that was causing them to miss shots. Gonzaga did not have an off night. Baylor had an on night in every aspect, every facet of their game. I mean, Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell, two absolutely superb two-way players that played themselves from late first round picks to now both being potential lottery picks in the NBA draft. They did it in this tournament. You know, this was a Baylor team that I was very low on coming into the tournament. I had Gonzaga. I'm historically low on Gonzaga. Like I said, I've been a Gonzaga hater all year. I actually caved and I took him to go to the championship game and lose to Illinois. Baylor I had as my first one seed to be eliminated. I thought Purdue, who of course, lost in the round of 64 to North Texas, I thought Purdue was going to knock out Baylor in the Sweet 16. I simply did not trust this team. I mean, this is a team that struggled with to win Iowa State late in the year. But if you take a step back and you objectively look at this Baylor season, Baylor's struggles really only came when they were just back from a COVID pause. Now, you could look on the flip side and say, well, Gonzaga took two weeks off because of COVID, came out at a neutral location in South Dakota, played an Iowa team that at the time was seen as a top two, top three team in the country, and they dismantled them. I mean, they won by, I believe, 12, but the game was really never that close. It was more like a 20-point game for the majority of it. So Gonzaga does that coming off COVID. Baylor really struggles, and then Baylor fails to win the Big 12 tournament, and you could say that they were trending in the wrong direction, right? That Baylor was maybe overrated, overhyped. No, Baylor was the best team in the country. The most complete team. They were deeper than Gonzaga. They were tougher than Gonzaga. They were stronger than Gonzaga. They were better than Gonzaga. And that Baylor win last night, not that Gonzaga loss. I want to focus on that Baylor win was absolutely incredible because they bullied a team that had been bullying opposing teams all year. A A team that prior to the buzzer beater win against UCLA Saturday night in the Final Four, hadn't won a tournament game by fewer than 15 points in its first four games. I mean, forget the opening round, the the one versus 16, forget even the one versus eight game against Oklahoma that they won by what was 18? I mean, you're talking a sweet 16 win and an elite eight win each by more than 15 points. Gonzaga wasn't beating teams all year. They were destroying teams all year. And then they got a taste of their own medicine in the national title game. By the way, Jalen Suggs, nothing broke my heart more than watching Jalen Suggs after that game in tears. I mean, he is one of the most likable, talented young prospects in college basketball. I cannot wait to see what he does. He's gonna be a top five pick. He might've played his way this tournament into a top three pick. And of course, you know, depending on how the lottery goes, where things fall, Evan Mobley is seen as the number two behind Cade Cunningham. But if you get a team picking second that doesn't need a big man, hello, Jalen Suggs, maybe. I mean, this is a guy who was talked about as the fifth or sixth pick in the draft. He could have played his way into the second or third pick. He's so talented. He's such a team player. You know, he can play on a team and be its best scorer, yet also average a double-double. He's he's that good of a facilitator. You know, someone who I was not all that impressed with? Drew Timmy. I I mean, I know... You know, he shot the ball efficiently, only took seven shots, made five of them. All right, 12 points is not bad. He got bullied in the paint. Had five of Gonzaga's 14 turnovers, which by the way, very uncharacteristic of this Gonzaga team to turn the ball over as much as they did. Timmy had a third of their turnovers. And that's what I talk about when I I talk about Baylor being tougher and stronger and bullying them. Baylor took the ball at will on the defensive end. I mean, Gonzaga was flustered, it seemed, every time they moved down the court. The only guy who wasn't, and there were times where he was, but who wasn't consistently flustered on offense was Jalen Suggs. There were plays that Suggs was able to take over. You know, Gonzaga cut it down to, what, nine in the second half? But it was never enough. From the point that it was 9 nothing Baylor three minutes into this game, it was over. Suggs couldn't do it by himself. Yeah, Drew Timmy celebrating after a layup when his team's down, what, 17-7? I mean, give me a break. That was, I, I thought, disgusting and uncharacteristic of this squad. Uh, you had Corey Kispert, who just looked so uncomposed. Uh, I mean, you you have him taking an up-down at the wing in the second half. A crucial three. is going up for it. Baylor closes in on him so well, he-, he puts the ball on the floor. Like, he didn't know what he was doing. That's how flustering Scott Drew's defense was. I mean, this Baylor team... It was the perfect storm of Baylor having their A game and Gonzaga just not being ready for the spotlight. And Gonzaga looked a lot better a few years ago. What was it, 2017, the national championship they lost to North Carolina? They looked a lot better in that game than they did last night. And this was talked about as if they were an all-time team. Some people are still saying that they're an all-time team. I just need more from them. I need a whole lot more from Gonzaga than... I know it's great to make two national title appearances in a four year span, but they can't get over that hump. And this was supposed to be the year that they did, and I was eating my words and I was finally on the bandwagon. But once again, in the end, Gonzaga proved me right. They can't get over that hump. And I think part of that is Gonzaga's fault. And I think part of that is because of the conference they play in. I'm sorry. I know that there are years where St. Mary's is a really good team, a top 25 team. I know that there are years like this year where BYU is a really good team. A West Coast Conference schedule does not prepare you for the NCAA tournament for a national championship. It just doesn't. And Gonzaga, credit them. They scheduled all the big dogs this year, right? They played Iowa at a neutral location, they played Virginia. They played Kansas. They scheduled Baylor, right? Don't forget these two teams were supposed to meet up in the regular season in the non-conference schedule. And then COVID canceled that game. Gonzaga did everything right in terms of their non-conference schedule. But then when that's done and you play what is it? 16, 18 games against Santa Clara and Pepperdine and San Francisco. I know you get BYU and Saint Mary's sprinkled in there. BYU was a 6 seed, Saint Mary's made the NIT. I'm sorry, that does not prepare you for the adversity that you will eventually face in the NCAA tournament, right? I just talked about Gonzaga beating their first four opponents by 15 points or more. They escaped UCLA then in the final four, but when Baylor came out Monday night and punched them in the mouth early, the game was over. Because the only time all year Gonzaga had seen adversity like that was against BYU in the West Coast Conference Tournament Championship game. But BYU had nowhere near the talent that Baylor had. So when BYU jumped out to that double-digit lead, to that halftime lead, Gonzaga was clearly the better team and was clearly able to get back in the game. And ultimately, they won handily. I think they even covered in that game. Different team. When Baylor jumped out to that lead, when Baylor punched them in the mouth, Gonzaga didn't have the answers. And truthfully, I think it's because of the quality of the opponents that they play. And that will never change. They're not joining the Pac-12. They don't have a football team. The Pac-12 isn't taken. Basketball only members, right? I think the only team in all power five conferences that isn't in a conference in football is Notre Dame, right? Notre Dame gets the exception there. They're in the ACC for basketball, independent for football. No one else is taking a one sport member. No other power conference that is, is taking a one sport member. You know, even the Mountain West. I'm pretty sure every team in the Mountain West conference is in it for both football and basketball. So Gonzaga needs to come up with some answers because as long as they're playing Santa Clara and Pepperdine twice every regular season, they're not going to be equipped to win a national title. When we come back, a little master's talk. My guy Cam Rogers, host of the Tiger Woods pod right here on the Believe Podcast Network is all set to join us. So stick with me, Joe Serrallo, right here on Serrallo Sports Talk. (sighs)
1: Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's
0: Joe.
2: We're back here on Soralo Sports Talk and joining the show now. He's the host of the Tiger Woods Pod right here on the Believe Podcast Network. You've seen him talking golf on CNN, CBS Sports. You've heard him on SiriusXM. You can follow what he's doing on the sphere at MrRogers99. It's Cam Rogers. Cam, thanks so much for joining the show.
1: What's going on, my man? Happy to do it, and happy Masters Week to you. I will say it is weird because we just had this tournament in November, and here we are again in April. Let's go.
2: Yeah, I got to be honest. I really wasn't as into it in November. I know something came up. You were supposed to come on the show back then. Right. It, just, it didn't feel like master season. It was football season. But now here we are. Baseball just started. We still have about 157 games to go. So we're not in full swing there yet. College hoops is over. We can all just focus on the masters this week.
1: Yeah, we can kick the can down the road with baseball, but absolutely, NFL is king, so I was kind of sad, honestly, that we had a Masters in November, Yeah, but, you know, it worked out pretty well.
2: It, it did, and Ken, you know, I mentioned college basketball just ended, and before we get into golf, you, of course, did a phenomenal job running the Believe Bracket Group on CBS Sports, our bracket that we do at the Believe Podcast Network, which I had an embarrassing debut in, finishing 63rd out of, what, ninety nine. You finished 44th, not much better. Middle of the pack. What did you think of how the bracket went this year?
1: Well, I honestly did not put a lot of research into my bracket this year, Joe. And look, the ROI on success in a bracket league with the research that you do really isn't there. Like, I could be doing research all week and finish dead last. Like, the person who won our bracket challenge, by the way, spent all of 90 seconds working (laughs) on his bracket. So, for everybody listening out there, like, don't stress about crunching the numbers and going crazy about your research because sometimes it's just luck. But I love doing these brackets because there's that element of community involved. And that's why I do the video recaps and the stupid Vegas odds and all that jazz. Which are amazing, in, by the way. <laughs> it brings in more intensity. You know, it's not just, here's the leaderboard and I don't talk to you for the whole month, right? So I really enjoyed that. And- I knew there was going to be a lot of carnage in this bracket, Joe, because of the odd season that it was with COVID and what have you. So when I saw Illinois go down, Ohio State go down, Michigan go down, I wasn't too shocked. I just couldn't pinpoint who was going to win the title. And there you have it. Baylor got it done. And sorry, Zags, no perfect season.
2: Yeah, both of our picks, Illinois for me, Iowa for you, went down in the round of 32. What did you think about that championship game? Gonzaga finishes 31-1, and and it feels like no one's going to remember the 31 wins, right? It's that one loss that's going to overshadow what could have been the first perfect season since the 1970s. What did you think about that game Monday night?
1: I almost can't help but think about that BYU game that Gonzaga played, Mm -hmm. I want to say, a month and a half ago or so. It could have been in the WCC tournament. I can't recall, but they were down big. And they eventually won, but you saw some... Gaps in the armor, if you will, in terms of their deficiencies, and then you saw it again against UCLA. Might I add, an 11 seed, and what was that line, Joe? Like 15 in that 14 game? 14 and a
2: half. Yeah, 14 and a half. Hammered yeah, exactly. UCLA, by the way.
1: Absolutely, you got to. So it's like you almost knew that there were some problems here, and after watching Baylor dominate over Houston, well, you just read the momentum there. And sometimes momentum doesn't work out. It obviously did this time because Baylor played fantastically and Gonzaga was sort of slapped in the mouth, if you will.
2: Yeah, Baylor came out and they did exactly that. They punched him in the mouth early on. And with that game, I mean, it felt like it was over when it was nine, nothing bears three minutes into the game. It was wild. Cam, let's get to the Masters. Uh, I see the Tiger Woods magazines on the wall behind me. Very you.
1: patchwork behind me.
2: Great yeah. tape job. Yeah, I love it. You got the, the cover of the magazine. My girlfriend
1: over. roasts me about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm working on it.
2: How weird is it going to feel watching the Masters this weekend without Tiger in it?
1: Yeah, it's going to be tough. And here's what I have been saying to people. We've gone down this road before. We've Mm -hmm. gone through Masters without Tiger Woods due to injury or what have you. And so I don't think it's going to be all too weird. Obviously, we will miss him. But I also think the game of golf is in good hands. And this could be a nice little test for us as we go forward here where we don't know when Tiger Woods will come back. And we have content creators on tour like a Bryson DeChambeau and a Brooks Kepka who really bring in some intrigue to the game. This will be a nice little test this week in terms of the viewership in particular and kind of compare that to Tiger Woods in 2019. Let's write off 2020. It was November football season. Yeah. CBS had to like tangle with the NFL in that late window, but also have the Masters early on that Sunday. So one off there. So it'll be interesting to see the numbers come Monday morning about viewership, but I do think golf is in good hands. Again, we'll miss tiger woods this week, but it should be a fantastic week on the golf course. And I think that's where tiger woods actually wants the focus. He doesn't want the tributes and what have you. He wants everybody to focus in on the game happening on the course.
2: And there's plenty of talent out there in Augusta, looking at the current favorites, courtesy of FanDuel, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, who you mentioned, both coming in at plus 950. Then you've got Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas right behind them around 11 to 1. Who do you view as the favorite this weekend?
1: Well, I'll tell you who I'm picking. How about that? Outright, John Rahm, who is one of the favorites this week. And he's what, 12 to 1? Yeah, he's around there. I think he's third on the list on FanDuel. And, you know, when you pick the Masters outright, you have to go chalky because typically these leaderboards are chalky. This is a very small field relative to the Mm. other major championships. Under 100 players. And really, you can whittle it down to like 20 people who can actually win this tournament because you have amateurs and first timers and past champions who are past their prime. So you really can narrow it down. And obviously, John Rom is within that category of who can actually slip on the green jacket on Sunday evening. Fantastic driver of the golf ball. He can crush it a country mile. You need that at Augusta National. He can crush the par fives. You certainly need that. And his tee to green game in general is fantastic. If you look at the trends at the Masters, the 90 days leading into the tournament you need to be on your game t to green and i have a list for you joe here's the top 15 with that in mind and i'll just run through actually until i get to rom here cantley is at one in terms of t to green within the last 90 days calm Morikawa, pga champion paul casey justin thomas Corey connors sergio at six there's bryson at seven john rom at eight Right behind him is Spieth at number nine, who I like a lot as well. So
2: I like those guys, a lot this week. Yeah,
1: those guys who I just listed off, a ton of outright potential to win it all.
2: Now, I want to focus on Jordan Spieth because he's right behind John Rahm. I like him. Uh, I'm assuming you think he's going to have a bounce back here at this Masters because the last two, he hasn't even cracked the top 20, yet prior to that, had a top three finish in what, four out of five appearances? So which Spieth should we expect this weekend?
1: Jordan Spieth is back. He's back. I needed some time to watch the tape, see how he played, and he was starting to trend in the right direction. And he just won the Valero Texas Open, albeit a weak field, which is fine. But he still won a PGA Tour event for the first time since 2017 when he won the Open Championship at Burkdale. And for a time there, Joe, after that, Spieth lost his game. I mean, he could not hit his irons at all. He couldn't score. He had the chipping yips and here we go. Spieth is the perfect combination of elite course history here at Augusta National and elite recent form. That's what you want when you're playing daily fantasy, fan duel, and you're betting and going for the top 10 finishes and what have you. His 2.9 career strokes gained per round at Augusta National are the most of anyone with a minimum of five rounds played. He loves this course. He's posted six top 15 finishes in his past seven uh, starts. So it's all there. I love him. You should love him. Everybody should love him this week.
2: I, I do love him. Now, another guy, because not too many guys are comfortable at Augusta National, right? Yeah, you look at certain courses across the country and guys have their favorites. Augusta National, it's pretty rare that a guy is comfortable on this course. Speeth is one of them. Another one, of course, the favorite, Dustin Johnson. Uh-huh. The only golfer that's beaten him in the last two Masters is Tiger Woods, of course, who did it in 2019. Uh, are you overlooking Dustin Johnson here? Or is there a piece of his game that you don't think has him equipped to win this weekend?
1: Here's the thing about golf. It's a volatile sport. Mm-hmm. You can miss three cuts and then win. Brooks Kepka did that not too long ago. You got to take a stand at the top of this board here, Joe, because not everybody can finish inside the top 10. And you have to decide who's going to finish T30 and who's going to finish T4. I think Spieth has the T4 upside, and I really don't have all that confidence that Dustin Johnson can get on that end of the direction. I think he's closer to T30 for this week. Why is that? Well, first of all, he's fighting history to defend his title. Only three players have done it, Jack, Tiger, Sir Nick Faldo. Uh, He hasn't finished outside the top 10 since 2014 at this tournament, so that's good, but his recent play leaves a lot to be desired right now. And even if you're off your game just a little bit and you're competing against the likes of Rom and Spieth and McElroy and Brooks, you know, that's destined for a T 22 T 25 sort of finish, which is fine, but it's not what you want from a favorite, right? So you're not getting a lot of value in the outright market with Dustin Johnson. And you certainly won't with, you know, a top 20 finish sort of situation. So I just am not putting my money on him this week.
2: Fair enough. So what other bets do you like? Obviously ROM 12 to one, he's your pick to win it. What other bets are we looking at for this weekend?
1: Yeah. So I think finishing position has a lot of value here. And I like to go down to the top 10 finishing positions because you can put so much stock in course history at Augusta national. And if you see a little bit of good recent form, that's where you can find the winners here. So somebody like an Adam Scott, Plus 490 to finish inside the top 10. He played pretty well at the Honda Classic not too long ago. His iron game was fantastic, and obviously he's a champion here at the Masters. That's some pretty darn good value. Matthew Fitzpatrick, plus 450 to get it done. He gained strokes in every single major category, talking about driving, iron game, short game, and putter. You like that? Has played well at Augusta National before. He could get inside the top ten as well. And then you can go down the board or go down the finishing list here and look at maybe a top twenty and somebody along the lines of a Matt Kuchar makes some sense. Plus two thirty to finish inside the top twenty. He's played well recently at the Match Play and at the Valero Texas Open. Lost his game for a bit actually, and seems to have found it. Has played well at Augusta National too. Sergio Garcia, like him a lot this week as well. He's inside my top 10 in terms of the power rankings. So a top 20 finish plus 175 to get that done. Certainly within the realm of possibility, he's an elite T to green guy. So I like him a lot as well. And then one more name. How about Lee Westwood? Seems to have found the fountain of youth, if you will, plus 150 to finish inside the top 20. For example, his iron game is fantastic, has played well at Augusta many a times. And his recent form, pretty darn good. Two runners up finishes last month. So Lee Westwood makes some sense
2: this week. There you go. Now, what about Brooks Kepka? You mentioned him a little bit before. Obviously, a ton of uncertainty coming off knee surgery. A lot of people thought he wasn't even going to be able to participate in the Masters. What do you think we're going to see from Brooks Kepka this weekend?
1: So, I'm hearing that there's hardware in his knee to, like, hold everything in place, but yeah. yet doctors are saying he should be fine. The guy just had a procedure last month, so it's like, how much confidence can you really have in Brooks Kepka? Really, you're flying blind if you throw some money on him, and... Really, you're just relying on his elite course history. Of course, just his elite major championship history in general. He's a four-time major champion has a slew of other top 15 finishes at these sort of events. But I really don't want to risk it. Now, I could see some value with an outright maybe sprinkle some cash down there because if he finishes T2 or misses the cut, it really doesn't matter. In terms of daily fantasy I probably wouldn't go in that direction. I see more downside than upside for him this week. Let's see how he plays. Let's see how that knee holds up.
2: Yeah, I'm really skeptical to see what he does. Look, I love Brooks Kepka. He's my favorite golfer in the game. I got to see him up close at Bethpage Black at the PGA Championship two years ago. And watching him in person was, it was wild because there aren't too many guys. And I guess it's changing. Tiger started to change it. But there aren't too many guys that you watch play golf and you're like, He's an incredible athlete, not a golfer, Mm -hmm. but an incredible athlete. And watching Kepka, he's one of those guys. I just hope he's not rushing back now from this injury and that he doesn't damage himself further down the line.
1: Well, yeah, Tiger brought on the athlete golfer, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we have these gym rats now, Rory McIlroy and Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau. All of these guys have molded themselves into athlete golfers, and Tiger was the first one to come onto the scene. Before that, it was a bunch of guys with beer bellies, right? Yeah, John Running Daly Championships, <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, even Phil Mickelson, he used to be pretty overweight if you go to, like, the mid-2000s, and yeah. he has really slimmed down as well, so... Yeah, you have somebody like a Brooks Kepka, I'm sure he'll be fine. He'll recover and what have you, but I just want to see it before I throw some money down or make any sort of prediction.
2: What do you think about Phil, by the way? Obviously, he's won multiple Masters. He's a long shot this weekend. Do you like him? If someone's looking for a long shot play, is Phil the play? Or is it someone like a Francesco Molinari, maybe a Tony Finau? I mean, those are two guys that just in 2019 had really successful weekends. What long shot would you recommend?
1: Yeah, I'm taking a look at the board here for FanDuel. Phil has the same odds as the likes of Ryan Palmer, Cameron Champ, Dylan Fratelli, who finished inside the top 10 back in November. Phil is 180 to 1 to get it done. Here's what I'll say about Phil Mickelson, because I feel bad I've been shitting on him for the last (laughs) few months because he's been so bad on tour. He's actually gaining strokes with his irons in his recent form on the PGA Tour, and There's something about the Masters, Joe, sometimes where you roll down Magnolia Lane, you find that magic, and you pull a top 20 out of your butt, and nobody saw it coming, right? So I think that's certainly within the realm of possibility for Phil Mickelson. For example, Tiger Woods, after the big scandal in 2009, right? Long layoff from the game, rolls up to Augusta and finishes inside the top 10. Had no business doing that because he didn't even play well that week, if you remember. So... You know, Phil can kind of drive off of that Augusta magic, if you will. In terms of actually capturing yet another green jacket, I don't think it's going to happen. He is a three-time champion, 15 top tens here, so we'll see what happens. But if you want to go for maybe a top 20 or even a top 10, sprinkle some cash down on that. I wouldn't talk you down from that.
2: What about a guy like Molinari? 2019, of course, he had the big collapse on Sunday, had a great tournament otherwise. He's really struggled since. Another yeah. guy I talk about watching Kepka at the PGA Championship at Bethpage. Molinari was in that threesome with Tiger and Kepka, and he was absolutely horrendous. I believe he finished T48 on the Bethpage Black course that weekend. What about him? Any value there as a long shot, maybe T10, T20?
1: Nah, I'm off him this week, Joe. I'm not a big fan of Francesco Molinari just because like you mentioned, his recent form really isn't there. He has Mm -hmm. not been tested in the heat of competition on a Sunday afternoon in quite some time. So I think really he is riding momentum from that master's performance not too long ago, but even still, like, I don't know how much you can really draw off of that. So I'm off Francesco Molinari. I would rather go in another direction. I would honestly go down to Phil at 180 to one rather than Molinari at
2: 160. Yeah, there you go. Last guy, Cam, I want to ask you before we wrap this up, Abraham answer. Hmm. A lot has been talked about him being a popular long shot this week. He's plus 9,500. That's 95 to one odds. Are you on his game? You haven't mentioned him, but everywhere I'm reading, it says that he's the popular long shot pick.
1: Yeah, he's a trendy guy. He is so consistent mm-hmm. on the PGA Tour, very rarely misses cuts. His iron game is fantastic. He's a good birdie maker, too. The only knock on him, and this is why he has that inflated number, is that he doesn't have a lot of experience at Augusta National. And sometimes that trend can be bucked, as Sun J M did back in November, finishing inside the top three uh, in his debut. I like Abraham answer as a value play for a top 20, top 10. I would look at him at matchups as well in group plays. But in terms of actually capturing the green jacket, I don't think it's going to happen for him. I think he needs to win on the PGA Tour first before he wins a major championship. But great game. I mean, he has a fantastic game, and I think he'll be a factor at majors to come.
2: Well, there you have it from Cam Rogers. Follow him on Twitter at MrRogers99. Also, check out his podcast. Right now that Sorallo Sports Talk is on the Believe Podcast Network, spread the love. Check out the Tiger Woods pod on the Believe Podcast Network. Cam, thank you so much for the time. I'm going to take your advice. I'm going to lay some money on your recommended picks. I know you're much better at predicting golf than you are brackets. So I'm looking forward to this weekend, man. (laughs)
1: My friends call me Cam Autofade Rogers. Go the exact opposite (laughs) of whatever I say. Hey, bud, great to be with you.
2: Amazing. We'll be right back here on Sorello Sports Talk.
1: Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Sorallo Sports Talk.
2: It is time for my final word here on Sorallo Sports Talk. And if you don't already, go follow Cam Rogers on Twitter at MrRogers99. I mean, just an incredible guest. This guy's forgotten more about golf than I will probably ever know. I mean, just an absolute wealth of knowledge on Tiger Woods on golf. Be sure to check out his podcast, the Tiger Woods Pod, right here on the Believe Podcast Network. But for my final word, I'm coming at you with two New York teams, my Mets and the New York Jets. And I'm going to start there with the Jets, sending Sam Darnold to the Carolina Panthers for three draft picks. You know, if I had to make a list of maybe five, six, seven teams that the Jets would find to send Sam Darnold to, Carolina would probably be right at the bottom of that list. I mean, I thought Pittsburgh was an ideal spot for Sam, right? You sit one year behind Ben Roethlisberger, even though it seems like every year for the past three years, we've been saying Ben has one more year left. I truly think Ben has one year left. So Sam could have sat behind him And then taking over a team with a great defense and a competent offense. And I don't care what you say about this team's lack of postseason success or their collapse last year going from 11-0 to 12-4 in a wildcard weekend exit. They have an amazing head coach in Mike Tomlin, right? I mean, imagine going from Adam Gase to Mike Tomlin. If you've played for Adam Gase or if you've rooted for a team coached by Adam Gase, you cannot say a bad word about Mike Tomlin. So I thought Pittsburgh was a great fit for Darnold. I thought San Francisco, of course, was just a natural fit, right? The California kid played at USC, go to a Shanahan run team in San Francisco. I thought that would have been ideal for Darnold. But Carolina is interesting because now you're sending him down to a team that of course was terrible last year, of course expected to be terrible last year, but a team with a head coach in Matt Rule who has a proven track record of turning teams around, whether it's Temple football, Baylor football, that's right, Baylor, the national champs in basketball right now, their football team experienced one hell of a turnaround under Matt Rule, going from, what, one or two wins to a New Year's Six Bowl. You've got Joe Brady down in Carolina, who, of course, is largely responsible for Joe Burrow's incredible success, that amazing season at LSU a couple years ago. I can't wait to see what a Joe Brady offense can do for Sam Darnold's game. Look, Darnold has so much untapped potential. He can be an elite quarterback, especially in the NFC, right? you got the AFC that's run by Patrick Mahomes right now, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, and Joe Burrow are up and coming. Baker Mayfield's there. Deshaun Watson, who knows moving forward, of course, what's going on with him. Then you're going to add Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson, of course, because that's the direction the Jets are going in. They're going to draft Zach Wilson after the Jaguars take Lawrence. But the NFC... It's wide open in terms of Pro Bowl quarterbacks, right? I mean, you've got your mainstay in Russ Wilson. Tom Brady's there, of course. Who knows how many years left he has. Aaron Rodgers. It's pretty open, right? I mean, Brady is the GOAT, the best of all time. We don't have to discuss that any further, but he's not always a Pro Bowler, right? He doesn't always put up the best numbers, especially in recent years, statistically speaking. You've got Drew Brees, who, statistically speaking, always does manage to put up great numbers. He's retired. All of a sudden, Sam Darnold is going into a situation where he can be a Pro Bowl quarterback if he writes the shit. Now all the pressure is on him, right? There's no more excuse in terms of coaching. There's no more excuse really in terms of weapons. He's reunited with Robbie Anderson. He has an elite running back when healthy in Christian McCaffrey, who, by the way, when he's healthy, not only is he a top three running back, but he's also the best receiving running back in the game there's no excuse. The defense is only going to get better. Carolina made history back a year ago when they became the first team to draft only defense, I believe with at least five picks, took defense every round, right? So the defense is only going to get better. I mean, the pressure is truly on Sam Darnold. I think he's going to succeed. I think Carolina is set up in terms of a two or three year plan. I think they're set up better than New Orleans, frankly right? They've got the hungry coach in Matt Rule who's always looking to prove something everywhere he goes. They've got the young genius in Joe Brady who, by the way, Joe Brady knows if he turns Sam Darnold around and if he turns this Carolina squad into a playoff team, Joe Brady's going to be a head coach soon in the NFL, right? He's aware of this. Don't don't think it's going over his head and that he's thinking he's going to be a Carolina Panther for a long time. No, Joe Brady knows If this team is successful, Matt Rule is locked in to be their head coach for a long time coming. Joe Brady knows this is his opportunity to get a head coaching gig in the NFL. I absolutely love this move for Sam Darnold. And I think it's a win-win, right? That doesn't happen too often in the NFL, but I think this deal is a true win-win because the Jets had it. Sam Darnold's confidence in New York was absolutely shattered. He was seeing ghosts on a weekly basis. I mean, the Jets needed to move in a different direction. And now, Joe Douglas and Robert Salah can get their guy in Zach Wilson. And now the pressure's on them. They don't have the excuse. They can't say, oh, well, Sam Darnold this, Sam Darnold that. No, they're bringing in their guy now. And I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to Zach Wilson, you know, (laughs) for the same reason that I, you know, I talked about BYU basketball as not being legit enough competition for Gonzaga in my monologue. You know, BYU football, they had a great year. Who do they play? I mean, what was BYU's. Toughest game on the schedule, a last second road trip to Coastal Carolina. And look, I give them credit for taking that game, right? Uh, They scheduled that midweek. It was supposed to be Coastal Carolina Liberty and then COVID ruined that. The game was going to be canceled. So credit BYU for all that stuff. But when that's your toughest opponent, I don't know. I struggle to say that their quarterback should be the number two pick in the draft when you have Justin Fields, who's got more broken ribs than Drew Brees going out there in a national semifinal, an embarrassing... Trevor Lawrence and Dabo Sweeney's Clemson team. I mean, Justin Fields, you know, people want to talk about character concerns and does he want it enough? Give me a break. What he did two years ago, his performance two seasons ago, pre-COVID, should speak for itself. And then, even though he had a down year in the regular season, I mean, Ohio State only played, what, six games in the regular season, right? So it's tough to judge him based off of that. But then to go out there in the college football playoff and dismantle a Clemson defense that is annually a top three defense in the country, Justin Fields is the second best quarterback in this draft class, in my opinion. I don't think Zach Wilson is worthy of the number two pick. Now, that's not to say that Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Zach Wilson can't all be superstars. It's unlikely, but it's possible. I just think if I'm drafting second, Justin Fields is my guy, not Zach Wilson. You know, he's an athletic freak, but... There's a big difference as to what you can do on your pro day as opposed to what you can do against NFL defenses. And I don't know if Zach Wilson can perform at the same level against NFL defenses, but we'll see. Right now, it's a win-win. Sam Darnold gets a much better situation for him personally. The Jets get a better situation and an opportunity to take their guy. We'll see how it pans out. Now, switching from the Jets to the team that they used to share Shea Stadium with My New York Mets, what the hell happened on opening night? Monday night, the Mets, of course, their weekend series, their supposed to be opening series against the Washington Nationals, got canceled because the Nationals came down with a COVID outbreak. By the way, the Nationals should have to forfeit all of those games. I'm going to sit here right now and say that the Washington Nationals should have to start the season 0-4, Right, three losses against the Mets, one against the Atlanta Braves, because you've got twenty-nine teams in Major League Baseball that have done the right thing and that have kept COVID under control, and now the Washington Nationals have gone out and totally thrown the Mets' schedule up in the air. I mean, now you have to figure out shared off days and double headers and how that's going to affect the bullpen moving forward and other. Pl- I-, I mean. The Mets did nothing wrong. The Mets have zero COVID cases. The Braves game too on Monday night that was postponed. I think that should be a forfeit as well. Give the Braves their first win of the year that way. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, I mean, it's truly ridiculous. The Washington Nationals are the only team. It's not 2020 anymore where it's going through the entire league. The Washington Nationals are the only team this year that hasn't gotten COVID under control. And there should be consequences for that. There should be penalties for that. It's ridiculous that now the Mets schedule moving forward has to be juggled over something that is the Nationals' fault 110%. So so that's where I'm starting. But opening day anyway, comes Monday night in Philly, Jake DeGrom on the bump, and I have not seen worse managing since last year. Oh, by the same guy, Luis Rojas. What the hell was Luis Rojas thinking, taking the best pitcher in baseball Not just right now, right here in 2021, but the best pitcher in baseball over the past five years, taking him out of the game with 77 pitches and a shutout working. I know it's opening day. I'm not asking to see Jacob DeGrom throw 110 pitches on opening day, but what I am asking for in a 2-0 ball game is to let him go out for the damn seventh inning when he's only thrown 77 pitches. It's not like the team was hitting. He wasn't up 8 nothing. No, in fact, he drove in one of the two runs that the Mets had when he left the game, when it was 2 nothing, He was two for two at the plate in that one. So everyone who's talking about Shohei Ohtani being the next Babe Ruth, slow your roll because Jacob deGrom passed Ohtani for the fastest pitch in baseball. He hit 102 on the gun Monday night and he helped himself at the plate just like Ohtani did. So I don't want to hear that Ohtani is a unicorn when Jake deGrom is doing the same and doing it better, but to take him out of the game in that situation is absolutely inexcusable. I mean, the bullpen comes in and it's a new year. You've got new pieces. Trevor May, who I'm still very excited about, blows it in his Mets debut and they lose the game 5-3. I mean, this is the best opening day team in the history of baseball. It should be death taxes and a New York Mets opening day win. But instead, Jacob deGrom, the best pitcher in baseball who gets the least amount of run support in baseball, gets screwed yet again by the New York Mets. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to overreact to this game and say that the whole season is in jeopardy now because of game one out of 162, but I'm livid and I'm sick of it. I mean, how much more can Jake deGrom do out there on the bump? Gives himself run support at the plate, throws six shutout innings, What else do you want from him? Uh, In the past three years, or going back to 2018, so three seasons and one game now, he's got an ERA of 1.78 in games that the Mets have not won. 1.78, that's his no decision ERA. So that's not counting games that he's lost, but in games where he's recorded a no decision, a 1.78 ERA. I mean, what does he have to do, literally be perfect every time out on the bump? Because he's damn near close. It is so freaking frustrating to watch him go out there and pitch at a Cy Young caliber level every night and not get a break. It's infuriating for Met fans. I'm sure it is for the guys on the team, too. I mean, Alonzo has spoken about it in the past. Other guys have, too, because Jake will never say it because he's the ultimate teammate. But it is just absolutely baffling how this guy can go out there and be the best pitcher in baseball since, I don't know, the last five years, right? Last four years, be the best pitcher in baseball, undoubtedly, in a four-year span. And he can't catch a break from his own team. I mean, Rojas was terrible. You know, this Rojas move, pulling him after 77 pitches, I know it's opening day. That'll be his excuse. He said Jake had six ups, right? Six innings. It wasn't a matter of pitch count. It was six ups, got up, came back six times. That's horse. That is absolute horse crap. Save it, all right? This is the reason Blake Snell is in San Diego right now, because of analytics. And look, I'm not anti-analytics. I think that, you know, they have their place in the game. But being a baseball guy and having feel, that also has its place in the game. And I talked about this a ton after the World Series. It's the reason Blake Snell is no longer a Tampa Bay Ray. Because Blake Snell cannot look Kevin Cash in the eye anymore and think to say anything except F you for pulling him out of game six in the World Series. If Blake Snell stays in that game, who knows what happens? The Dodgers probably still win the World Series, but it's a seven-game series instead of a six-game series. And Blake Snell couldn't live with that. He could not stay in Tampa Bay knowing what could have been and what should have been. Because the analytics screwed him over. And that's what happened opening night for the Mets. It was the analytics. It was the low pitch count and the six ups. What the hell? I've never heard a manager say that in my life. And I've played baseball a long time. I've never heard six ups. You're getting six ups, kid. What, is that extra trip from the dugout to the pitching rubber? Is that going to cause extra fatigue? Give me a break. 77 pitches. This is a guy who was throwing 90 pitches in spring training starts. He was throwing 102 early on in that game was still pumping 99 in the 6th inning. He's the best pitcher in baseball. And that's what I hate about analytics. There's no exception when it comes to analytics. Because those nerds, the guys that went to Yale that majored in statistics, right? That never picked up a baseball in their life, that couldn't hit a ball off a tee, these guys don't make exceptions for studs. Jacob DeGrom is a stud. He is the best pitcher in baseball. And if you want to tell me that Taiwan Walker gets six ups or that Joey Lucchesi gets six ups. That's fine. Apply analytics to those guys. If you don't want those guys to face the batting order three times, that's all right. Jake DeGrom should be the one telling the manager when he's done. That's how those guys work, right? Peak Clayton Kershaw, analytics didn't apply to him. Peak Justin Verlander, analytics I don't think still apply to Justin Verlander. I mean, of course, he's injured right now. He's not out there, but when Verlander's out there, Verlander decides when he comes out of the game. And that's because Dusty Baker, Justin Verlander's manager now down in Houston, he's a baseball guy. And I don't doubt that Luis Rojas is a baseball guy, but you need to let your instincts take over at that point. You know, he comes from a baseball family. When your dad is Felipe Alou, and your brother is Moise Alou, former Met, by the way, baseball is in your blood. You know the game. So go with your damn gut. Don't go with the numbers. Don't say, oh, it's opening day. We got 161 more games. Because guess what? The 07 and 08 Mets didn't have 161 more games. When those two teams missed the playoffs on the last day of the year, they proved that every game counts. I know it's a long season. I know people get tired of it. They get bored. They tune back in in September. Every game counts. And so far, the Mets are not off to a good start. Just like that, episode 31 of Sorallo Sports Talk is up, it's over, it's out of here. Special thanks to my man, Cam Rogers, for joining the show. I can't wait for the Masters this weekend. I'm so stoked, and hopefully the Mets get their shit together the rest of the way. I'll see you next week right here on Sorallo Sports Talk.
0: i